0: This is the Victory Podcast. Every week, we'll share an inspiring message about God's grace and forgiveness for you wherever you're at in life. Your victory starts now. We'll be focusing this morning on Psalm 73, and we'll read it throughout the the sermon, and so let's pray. Lord God, thank you for bringing us here to, to hear your word. We know it's not an accident that we're hearing your word, and so speak to us. Lead us to know the things you want us to believe and do, and don't let anything I'm doing get in the way of the work of your Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. How can a good God let bad things happen to good people? We're so thankful that you gave us your questions as we continue this sermon series. Glad you asked. And today we want to talk about suffering. And we wonder, how can a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? I think the reason you ask this question is because this is the question behind every other question. Whenever I've met somebody who's struggling and they tell me that that they left their faith because of science or because of what they heard Christians believe about politics or all these other things, if I keep asking the question, it gets down to really this question. Really, this is the question behind every other question. Why would God allow me to suffer such pain If he's a so-called good God, why, when I prayed to him, didn't he respond and act and do something? How could a good God allow such bad things to happen to good people? Now, this is a classic philosophical question that's really been debated for thousands of years. And, And there's One way that we could respond to it, we could respond to this question by going back to Genesis, going back to the very beginning. And in the very beginning, God creates a very good world, and everything is good. Everything is the way it's supposed to be, and he creates good people. And part of his good world is to give his people the ability to choose, what some people call free will, That they had the freedom. God didn't create robots, but he created human beings with the ability to choose whether they would follow him and let him be God and let him be in charge or if they would choose the path of selfishness and self-centeredness where they get to be God and they want to choose what's right and wrong, good and evil, good and bad. And unfortunately, influenced by the devil, a fallen angel, the first humans decided to do what was in their own Interest. They were selfish and self centered and wanted to be their own gods. And that brought sin into the world. And right away we see this sin starting in this family, but as you continue to read the book of Genesis, it like snowballs as it reaches to the very ends of the galaxy the influence of sin. And then Genesis chapter 12, uh, the writer focuses in on one family, the family of Abraham and Isaac. And Jacob and God chooses this family to be his special representatives, but we find out that they're no different than the rest of us. They too have been infected by sin, by selfishness, by evil. Because Jacob's sons take the favored son Joseph and through no fault of his own, they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And although he's a a good man who follows the Lord and trusts in the Lord, while he's in Egypt, he gets falsely accused for sexual harassment and he gets sent to prison and he's left there and forgotten there. And as you're reading the story, you gotta be thinking, and he's gotta be thinking, how could a good loving God allow such bad things to happen to such a good person? And yet by the end of the book, It just so happens that he's set free from prison and he uses all of his experience and the wisdom that God gave him and he becomes second in command in Egypt, one of the most powerful people in the whole world and he brings blessing to all the nations as he distributes the food during a time of famine. And he speaks to his brothers at the end of the book and he tells them this in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, some of the last verses of the book of Genesis and he puts it all in the perspective. He says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So there you have it. Joseph says that whenever there's evil, whenever there's suffering, although the devil and maybe ourselves, we intend to harm and hurt and destroy, but God intends it for good. And we see the same pattern in the life of Jesus. Jesus um, really is, is, his life is also patterned after the life of Joseph. Jesus too gets sold for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus too gets put on trial and falsely accused. But it's even worse for Jesus than Joseph. He gets hung up on a tree and he himself cries out in the words of the Psalms, Psalm 22, Why God, why have you forsaken me? Why would God let such bad things happen to such a good person like Jesus? But as we continue to watch the story, Jesus is raised from the dead and vindicated, and God uses this wickedness to rescue the world from sin. God uses evil and turns it out for good. And the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, makes the same point in the classic passage, And we know that in all things, in suffering, evil, bad things, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And so it seems pretty simple. How can a good God let bad things happen to good people? Well, the Bible seems to say over and over again throughout history and passages, God uses bad things for our eternal good. God allows them to happen and yet he uses all of them and he brings good out of all of it. But there's a problem with that answer. The problem with that answer is that's not exactly the question that all of us are asking. It's answering a question that that we don't really have. You see, we're not really wondering why would God allow bad things to happen in general? Why would God allow bad things to happen out there in general? Our real question is more specific. Our real question is, how can a good God let bad things happen to me? And that's when people start to turn away from the faith. And it's totally understandable. Because... I know many of you, you've, you've shared with us and our leadership and our team and myself, some of the things that you're struggling with. Some of you are going through really deep mental and emotional struggles right now. You're really struggling and you wonder, how could a loving God allow me to suffer such anxiety and depression? Some of you are, are fighting these debilitating diseases, these, Autoimmune diseases or Lyme's disease or all these many other diseases and you wonder how could a good God allow me to be inf- infected by such a disease that's so debilitating it's just really st- hurt my life I know some of you have been diagnosed with cancer and it's and it's it's growing and there don't seem to be any answers how could a good God allow you to have cancer I know some of you are struggling with with families that are breaking up and you're in the process maybe eventually that it's going to lead to a divorce or maybe you've had a divorce. And you say, how could God allow such a bad thing of breaking up our family? How could that be good? Some of you have lost loved ones and it's not like they reached you know, 80 years or the fullness of their life. You've lost loved ones at a very young age and you wonder, how could a good God allow me to lose the person I really rely on? It makes no logical sense. What good could possibly come out of that evil? I knew this was a big question, so I tried to research as much as I could this last week. I read a couple different books. One of them, Disappointed with God by Philip Yancey. I read some excerpts from C.S. Lewis books, The Problem of Pain, and then and the one I really dove into was the problem of suffering by Gregory Schultz. Gregory Schultz is a Lutheran professor of philosophy at Concordia, a Lutheran um, university pretty in the Mequon area. And he wrote this book, The Problem of Suffering, not because he was trying to answer some philosophical question, but because he was responding to his own pain and suffering. Gregory Schultz, uh, he lost his one-year-old daughter. She didn't even make it to one years old. She suffered her whole life as a child. And then didn't even make it to one, and he watched her die. But it wasn't just that. He also watched his teenage child die. He, his son Never reached 14 years old, and he watched his son suffer a debilitating disease. And he dug into the philosophy and he dug into God's word, and here it was his final conclusion that he came to what he says in his book I cannot justify God's ways with my children. There's no answer. This doesn't make sense. What possible good could come out of this suffering? And so I think if you'd ask him and many others who've gone through this suffering, how can a good God let bad things happen to me in that situation? Here's what he'd say. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why God allowed that. I don't know what good could come out of that. I don't, I'm not going to try even attempt to make the answer. I don't know. And when we look at Scripture, that's so often the, the story of God's people. We might know why God allowed Job to suffer, but God never tells Job. Job never knows. And Job cries out to God, and God still didn't give him the answer. Joseph, who suffered while he was in Egyptian slavery in prison, God never told him while he was suffering what was going on. We just don't know. God's ways are beyond our ways. We don't always have the answer why God will allow this thing to happen in our lives. But that doesn't mean that we have nothing to say. See, I think there is another question and a very important question that We can answer, and God's word gives us a very clear answer. Here's another question. How can we continue to live in hope while we suffer? How do we keep from giving up? How do we still trust God when God seems to be our enemy? How do we continue to walk with him? And to answer that question, I want to turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, if you were to open up your Bible, it starts... Book three, there's five books of the Psalms. And it seems like book three is really written, especially to people who were in the exile. Those people who had lost everything as the Babylonians came in and took them off in exile and they watched their temple be burned to the ground. They watched so many of their families suffer um, as they starved to death, lost so many family members as they were taken off to a foreign country. And they were lamenting. And it seems like this book especially was written to those who were suffering in exile. And they take a prayer from Asaph. Asaph was one of the Levitical choir leaders for King David hundreds of years before the exile. So this was a religious professional. This was a, a religious leader, a priest who spent time in the tabernacle, lots of time um, reading and mes- memorizing scripture. And that's why it's so surprising what Asaph says in the opening section of of his psalm. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so Asaph says, Surely God's good. I'm sure he's good. I've read about his goodness in the scriptures. He's good. But as for me, I almost lost my faith. Even as a religious insider, a religious professional, an expert in the Bible, I almost lost my faith entirely. As I looked at the prosperity of the wicked. What does he mean by that? Well, he goes on to explain. He says, those people have no regard for God, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their calloused hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and drink up their waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? So he looks at the wicked. You know, those people who carry out wickedness intentionally trying to harm people. Those people who who, who look for ways to take, or to to ruin people's lives. And he says, they're always healthy. They're healthy and they're prosperous and they seem happy. Not only do they seem to be pulling it off, they have no regard for God and people are following them. It seems like these wicked people are, are having every advantage and at the same time, they don't call out to God for any help. They fight against God. They defy God and life still turns out just fine for them. I think we can relate. We look at people who who may be perpetrators who've harmed children or others and they get away with it. But maybe even, not, not even that, maybe you kind of look at the wellness and the, 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 the wellness whole industry right now and you see people out there who are just, happy, healthy, prosperous, and at the same time, they have no regard for God. They don't want anything to do with God. Now, that would be bad enough. That would be confusing enough. But then Asaph goes on. He says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. It's bad enough that the wicked seem to be prospering. I could deal with that. But now I'm the one who's afflicted. And I've spent so much time trying to follow God. I've tried to keep my heart pure. I wake up and I read God's word. I attend worship. I do all of these things. And my body's wearing out. I have all these health issues. I have all these financial issues. And everything that I'm doing doesn't seem to be working. So he says, in vain, I have kept my heart pure. It's all for nothing. What good is it to follow God if I have so much misery in my life, so much pain in my life, so much disease and sickness and pain and suffering? It doesn't matter. Again, I think we can relate. We see people out there who seem to be prospering And we're here, we're in church, we're reading our Bible, we gave an offering, we've said a prayer, and it's our families that are splitting up. And it's our health that's failing. And it's our finances that are in a ruin. Doesn't make any sense. Now what I appreciate so much about this psalm is it's a lament And there are so many laments in the Bible. You look at basically the majority of the book of Job and it's Job lamenting to God. He's calling out to God saying, this is not right. Where are you, God? So many of the Psalms are lamenting. In fact, there is a whole book devoted to lamenting called the book of Lamentations. And so not only does God give us the permission to lament to him, but he gives us the very words to call out to God, God, where are you? How could you? What are you thinking? This is not right. This is not just. God, I can't stand you right now. That's from scripture. God allows us to say those words to him and he can handle them. It's okay to spend that time lamenting that things are not the way they're supposed to be. But Asaph doesn't stay there, and neither should we. He goes on to say this in verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God then I understood their final destiny. He said, Why did I, when I tried to reason this, understand in my head, and try to think about this logically, it didn't add up. It was two plus two equals five. It didn't make any sense. I couldn't understand rationally how God was going to use this evil for my good until I entered the sanctuary of God. Now for Asaph, that would have been going into the tabernacle or spending time reading the Torah, the scriptures, For the generations after him, who had been going into Solomon's temple. Then later on, going into the synagogue with other believers. For us as New Testament Christians, it means gathering here for worship. It means means gathering with friends in in a life group, in a small group. It means even opening up your Bibles at home. Whatever that means to enter into the sanctuary of God. He says, that's where I started to find some hope. That's when I didn't give up. I went into the sanctuary of God. And this is what I learned, he says. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one wakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Those perpetrators, those wicked people, those villains who think they're getting away with it, they seem so prosperous and healthy and strong. They're actually not that strong. They will face God's judgment. And Asaph sees that they don't have the strength that they think. They're not on solid ground. They're not on a foundation. God can take all that away in a moment. And then Asaph realizes, as he's in the sanctuary of God, I actually am in a strong position. I'm actually in a very strong, safe position. He says, verse 23, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. He says, I'm never alone. I'm in proximity to God. I'm close to God. And God is grabbing me by the hand. You know, you watch a child try to, to walk by themselves. Maybe you're walking on a a railroad or, or or some kind of beam or something like that. And they think they can do it all by themselves and they start to teeter and the father grabs them by the hand and holds on to them. That's what God does. God is holding Asaph by his hand. I think this is why so many of us, you know, appreciate or like that, that poem, Footprints in the Sand. I don't know if you've ever seen that, maybe in some on a plaque on somebody's wall in their home, Footprints in the Sand. It's this little poem about a man walking with Jesus and they're walking on the beach and it's an allegory of his life. And he looks back and he he looks back at the footprints and he says, hey, there's only one set of footprints back there. God, you left me. You promised you were never going to leave me. I look back, look, there's, there's only one set of footprints. And Jesus answered, that's when I was carrying you. And that's what Asaph is coming to realize that he's never been alone He's always been in a secure position. God has been carrying him through the suffering and he's going to carry you too. He says in verse 24, he learned this in the sanctuary of God. You guide me with your counsel. He gets wisdom from God. Wisdom on how to suffer well. You guide me with your counsel. So I'm going to walk in wisdom. I'm going to have your Holy Spirit. I'm going to have your word. I'm going to have your peace. I'm going to have your forgiveness. I'm going to have your acceptance. And then afterward, you will take me to glory. this last week, as I was reading from these different philosophers and Christians who'd suffered, you know, C.S. Lewis and, and Philip Yancey and this Gregory Schultz and uh, another, a couple other philosophers, they kept on pointing back to their real hope is in the resurrection. Their real hope was in heaven. And remember what we actually believe about heaven and the resurrection. We say it When we speak the words of the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed ends with this. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. We don't just believe that we're going to die and go up to heaven. We say this every week. Do you know this? We believe that our bodies are going to be resurrected and this world is going to be resurrected. So we believe that what happened to Jesus happened to us. Jesus suffered and died. We suffer and die. Jesus rose from the dead. We believe we will be resurrected. Paul says he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. But not only that, we believe that what happened to Jesus will happen to our world. That just as Jesus suffered and died, this world will suffer and die. And just like Jesus rose from the dead, this world this earth is going to be resurrected and God's going to make everything new. God is going to vindicate every piece of suffering. God's going to put us back together. Every piece of our broken down body He's going to make our bodies new. God is going to redeem every pain that you felt. God is going to make it all new. He's going to make everything that's gone wrong. He's going to make it all right again. And that was Asaph's hope. That's our hope, that afterward he will take us to glory, to the resurrection. And that clarifies things for Asaph. It clarifies what really matters to him. He says this, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. When he suffered and he stripped everything away, he started to see. you know what? What do I have in heaven? I have you. And everything on earth is nothing compared to you. I love the gifts that you give, but but what's really important to me is you, God. When he suffered, everything was stripped away. He saw what actually mattered. I don't know about you, but when I'm around somebody who has suffered, I feel like I'm in the presence of a prophet. See, those people who've suffered, they have a clarity about them. They have a clarity of what actually matters, what actually has value. They are able to see the mirage of so many things that we chase after in this world, and they're able to see what matters, faith in God, the presence of God, and then they see all these gifts like family and health and wealth and all these other things as just gifts of God. But the real thing that matters is God. And so if you are a person who suffered or are suffering, recognize you are a prophet. And you can help all of us clarify what actually really matters what actually is lasting and valuable. And he's honest. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph recognizes that he's a fallen person in a fallen world and he is not going to be different than the rest of the world that, that he acknowledges, you know what? I might suffer more disease. My flesh may fail. Even my faith may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. My real strength comes from God, and he is my inheritance. He is my portion. My strength is not in my own prosperity, my own ability, my own intellect. Those are all good gifts of God. Thank God for them. But my real strength comes from God and what he provides. And that leads him to close out this psalm. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. What Asaph came to realize is that real strength comes not from your prosperity, but your proximity to God. All those things of of wealth and health and intellect and all those things are good blessings of God, but they can all be taken away. They're not as strong as we might think. They don't give us the foundation that we think. What really makes us strong is to be near God, our proximity to God. And so I think that helps us answer our real question for today How can we continue to live in hope while we suffer? Our strength is not in our prosperity, but our proximity to God. Our strength is not in our prosperity. As good as those things are, our health and wealth and intellect, use those gifts as much as you can, but those can all be taken away tomorrow. Our real strength is in our proximity to God. How close we are to God. And so that leads us for to our Our take-home point. Where did Asaph find that strength? Where did he find that clarity? Where did he find that direction? By sitting in the sanctuary of God. So sit in the sanctuary of your Savior. You can't afford to miss worship. You can't. It's our strength. You can't afford to, to miss gathering with other Christians. You can It's our strength. You can't afford to not open up your Bible every day. It's your strength. That's where you'll find everlasting strength. But I know what happens, because this is what's happened to me. When you suffer and you pray to God and there's no answer, at least you can't see an answer, you don't see him changing or responding, you start to give up. You think, well, maybe he's not there. Maybe I just... Guessed all this stuff. Maybe I don't, maybe it's not real. Because he's not responding. And if he was a good God, he would respond. These are all the, the things that we think about when we suffer. But when you walk away from God in your suffering, you still have the suffering and no God besides. And so return to Jesus, sit with him in the sanctuary. Be with Jesus, the one who suffered for you and the one who suffers with you. And let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we we thank you for your promises, the overarching promise and the and your credibility through history that you use all evil and turn it out for our good. But right now, Lord God, some of us are suffering and we can't see any good in what we're experiencing. And so, instead of giving us the answer, give us your presence. Lead us to find proximity to you where our real power is. Help us to sit with you in the sanctuary of God to receive your your presence and your forgiveness and your salvation and help us not give up. Lead us through the suffering into glory. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Victory Podcast brought to you by Victory of the Lamb in Franklin, Wisconsin. For video sermon archives, more information about us and to let us know how we can meet you where you're at go to victoryofthelamb.com.